0: Welcome to Easter service, uh, if you're visiting with family from out of town, we're glad you're here. Um, if you're like a true local guest and you found us on the, uh, the internet, good to see you as well. Uh, and if by chance you thought this was a side stage at the 420 Fest, welcome as well. So, uh, you'll have to wait to smoke your weed. but. This is church, and um, but my name is Derek, and I'm the pastor, and today is Easter, and uh, Resurrection Sunday, oftentimes it is called as well. Come over here so I can see this crowd. Sorry about that. Oh, you want to hide? <laughs> uh, but uh, when I was a kid, Easter was just a one-day thing. It was like the best service of the year. Uh, it, it, you know, you got all the great music, all the great stuff, or the suit, uh, which I haven't done since. And um, but then about seven or eight years ago, our church hopped onto the church calendar and we learned that across the course of the church year that Easter is not an extracted one-off day, but it's like a 50-day season and uh, sometimes called the great 50 days or just the 50. So welcome to the 50. And uh, but it's a long time. So I mean, by the time Easter is done, we as a community will be entering or already be in the midst of uh, the ninth of the 12 seasons of Georgia. I don't know if you know these, uh, but the, t- the ninth of the 12 seasons is Hell's Front Porch. Um, do you not know these? I brought them. These are the 12 seasons of Georgia in order. We have winter, then we have a fool's spring. Second winter, spring of deception. Third winter, This is the season we're currently in, the pollening. (laughs) Actual spring, summer, Hell's Front Porch, false fall, second summer, (laughs) actual fall. There we go. That's all I got, so (laughs) thank you. I didn't make those up, but thanks for clapping. Now, what got us to the Easter season is a shorter season called Lent, and Lent is 10 days shorter than Easter. It's 40 days, and it's a season marked by this personal journey inward where we uh, practice in things like honesty and self-reflection. We tend to the injuries of our souls. We go in where we might be a little dark. Uh, We spend some time there. Um, We pay attention to how we have been injured in our faith over the last year. And it's a season marked by this discipline of the fast where we extract something from our lives as an attempt to enter a kind of wilderness season intentionally. Uh, I don't know if you fasted from something in Lent. I tried. Did anybody else just try? Uh, That's the way it works. Nobody actually wins Lent. Um, Some of you... Whatever personality Enneagram thing you fall on, maybe you think you can win Lent, but uh, it's not the point. In fact, failure is part of Lent's purpose, because Lent, uh, it does a very good job reminding us that we're all quite ill-equipped at self-salvation. That's kind of part of the point. So hopefully by the time we get to Easter, we're at least coming to recognize once again that we probably need something and someone bigger Than ourselves. And Lent is that season. So we kneel more in Lent. We sing the blues more. We read the Psalms and say, that's exactly how I feel. That's exactly how I pray. It's a season of honesty, but it leads us to today, a season of hope. And we have 50 days to figure out what that means. The pavement of Easter uh, and the length of the pavement of Easter is quite necessary so that we as we walk the Easter road, we have the time and the distance to think about this question. What does the resurrection mean? Now I suppose I could stand up here and try to prove the resurrection to you, but guess what? can't do that. No one has the film. You know? It's a thing that we place our faith in. But... As an Easter people, we walk these 50 days and try to wrestle with this question, what does the resurrection mean? Uh, essayist, writer, poet, ordained Presbyterian minister, Frederick Beekner said, the resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Uh, the Presbyterians, by the way, are the most intellectual of all the denominations. At least that's what they have told me. (laughs) But that is what it means. It means that the very worst thing is never the last thing. Amen? And that's what I want us to think about today, and that's what I want us to figure out over the next 50 days. Now, his words are inspired by the words of the Apostle Paul. These aren't just pulled out of his genius mind, but they come Uh, are inspired from the words of the Apostle Paul in one of our readings today in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, So if you have a Bible, you can turn there, 1 Corinthians 15. I'm just going to read the section that's given uh, for this Sunday. And uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about how that question, or how that statement about the resurrection is quite important for us today. Uh, In verse 19, chapter 15, verse 19, Paul writes, If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In prep for the sermon, I rewrote that verse. Uh, with Paul's permission, I wrote, <laughs> just to help it make some sense, but for as in Lent all die, so also in Easter shall all be made alive. Keep that in mind as we move forward. But each in his own order, Christ the fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God and the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. If you don't know much about 1 Corinthians 15, uh, it's, it's a place in Paul's letter to this church in Corinth written in about the year 50, right in the middle of the first century. And he's making a case for the resurrection. It's a weird part of the letter. It doesn't feel like it's going there, but you all of a sudden roll into chapter 15 and Paul begins to make a case about the resurrection or for the resurrection. And he's basically saying if the resurrection was a hoax and it and it really didn't happen then this is all quite silly. And it really is because I mean it's Sunday morning everybody. We could be sleeping. <laughs> but if it did happen, if it wasn't a hoax, then What he's saying is that the very worst thing about life, death itself, is not the last thing about life. Do you hear that? That death doesn't have the final word on life. That's what we know about the Easter story intellectually. Even if we don't always find hope in the story and we struggle at times to even believe the story... We at least know the story. Like you could go to Sunday school and win your badge at the quiz show because you could, you could repeat it. Oh yeah, Jesus died on a cross. They put him in a tomb and boom, he came out. I know the story even if I don't believe it. So we know that. We know the intellectual piece of Easter. We could all pass that Sunday school quiz. But Paul takes us further in to what the resurrection means. And I want us to sit... With verse 22, let me read it again for the rest of our time this morning. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam is a Hebrew word, and it means human. It means us, it's you and me. It's also a derivative of a similar Hebrew word that means dirt. So humans are dirt. If you ever think of someone as nothing more than dirt, you're on track theologically. In a collection of old Egyptian writings called The Wisdom of a Minimope, the writer tells of a bond between humanity and the Creator. It says, man is clay and straw, and the God is his builder. One of the earliest known Egyptian gods by the name of Khnum is said to have fashioned and built humanity at a potter's wheel. In Greek mythology, Prometheus formed Pandora from the earth itself. And in the Hebrew language, the word for human is Adam. And again, it comes from another Hebrew word, Adoma, which means earth and soil. So the profile of humanity as dirt is pretty old. It's pretty widespread across faith traditions. It's a picture of vulnerability. The dry earth, the ash, it's very loose, it's unreliable. The word imagines for us a certain level of weakness, a certain level of frailty. No one ever suggests that they can find safety behind a big pile of dust. Oh no, the the British are coming build a dirt wall like no one thinks that. That's what the writers are saying. Like dirt, all of us are easily scattered. We break and we continue to break. We are broken people. We are rarely solidified. Do you get that? And so part of what Paul is saying here is that our humanity plays a role in how we live and die. But Adam is also a name. As in the Adam and Eve story in Genesis. Do you know this story? These two people, Adam and Eve, are at the base of a tree in a garden. And this tree has a prohibition on it. Against it. You can't eat from it. So they're standing there. And then the serpent comes into play. And the serpent tries to tempt uh, the people, the two people, to eat from the tree. And um, it's a little bit of a struggle. It's a temptation story. It's this well, God told us we shouldn't do this. But then the serpent, the God said we shouldn't do this because we would die. And the serpent says to these two, that's silly, you're not going to die. God is lying to you. Don't worry about disappointing him. Just take it. In fact, if they went for it, this is what the serpent says, this is the temptation. If they went for it, if they trusted themselves, they would circumvent the need for God. That they would, as the serpent tells them, become like God. It's a great story. You don't need God. You just need to take the next step. You can reach for that identity. And they bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. And what ensued was nothing less than a kaleidoscope of of shame, of hiding from God, of blaming the other person. And so when Paul says that like Adam all die, he's not just referring to Adam as just like a harbinger of destruction in the world, as if Adam was the name of the lid on Pandora's box. He's saying that like Adam, our anthropology is very low. We're weak. And made even more so by our desire to be strong, to be divine, to be righteous. Adam is a picture of a frail humanity. Adam lives up to his etymology and his weakness and frailty, he finds failure. So when Paul says, for an atom, all die, we get it. Because we too, like dust and dirt, are not as strong as we often imagine. And we all know the failures that just come with being human. In the biblical tradition, death is way more than just not Breathing. Death is also a kind of living. And for Paul, Adam pictures for us this life of self-salvation. And that kind of life is lived by all of us. We want to be enough. Have enough, know enough, be seen and known as enough. Few of us want people to look at our lives and think they're not enough. So we work hard on ourselves, religiously even, We reach for divinity in our own ways. We get involved in pious behaviors about our politics or the way we raise our kids or how we work out, how we project ourselves to the world. And these things can morph into their own religious-like environments and communities where there are rules for admission and steps for expulsion. Change your politics and you might have to make new friends. Change your parenting philosophy and you might have to find a new moms group. There's some, there's some religious culture out there. David Zoll's new book, Seculosity, please get it, regarding the polls about declining church attendance, writes this, what the polls fail to report is that the marketplace in replacement religion is booming. We may be sleeping in on Sunday mornings in greater numbers, but we have never been more pious. Religious observance hasn't faded apace. Secularization so much has migrated, and we've got the anxiety to prove it. We are seldom not in church. Now, as a pastor, one of the things I see often in people is their injuries of a past faith from a church that didn't do well with questions or doubt and failure. And it makes me feel lucky to have grown up in a church environment where um, I was allowed to wander and say really stupid things in class and offensive things and to fail a lot. And it pains me when I sit with people whose experiences are from the other end of the spectrum. I can't relate. But David's always right. They quit church, but they didn't escape judgmental tendencies of people. Like you don't have to be a Christian to be a judgmental ass. (laughs) That tradition knows no faith system. (laughs) But Paul continues and says, So also in Christ shall all be made alive. I love this part. The back half of this verse tips in the direction of relief, renewal, and life. If Adam represents human frailty, if Adam represents what's worst about us, then Christ represents the remedy. He is the remedy. And resurrection, as Beekner says, means that the very worst thing is never the last thing. At least that's the way the New Testament sees it. And I want to just close with a couple of things here. The first is this, that we live in a cultural moment where your worst thing is definitely your last thing. We live in a cultural moment where your worst thing and my worst thing, that's our last thing. The shamed, the shunned, the disinherited. We're very good at pushing people out, tightening up the circle. This is the moment we live in. And redemption from whatever failures are in our lives is a hard-fought proposition these days. In most cases, we just have to leave or start over. We can't find redemption in our communities anymore. Condemnation comes quite easy in our world. And when the losses in someone's life are made evident... Close friends will leave for the safety of disassociation. And enemies will come in closer, never to miss the chance to rejoice over the failings of another. This is why losers are most alone, most at risk, and most in need. And people the world over are living painfully with their imperfected and broken lives, their weaknesses exposed, and convinced, because we've told them, that your worst thing is your last thing. Perhaps you understand that today. But again, I want to remind you that at least from the resurrection's point of view, the, the worst thing is never the last thing. The church has always been offensive to culture in its days. Some ways, it shouldn't have been offensive. But in other more substantial and Uh, honorable ways, it has always been offensive. Even just in recent history, the church was definitely a voice in the abolitionist movement. The church, some branches of the church in America, were quite vocal in support of women's equality. And in more recent years, of just social equality. The church is running first in line with the worldwide sex trade. To try and stop it. It's true. The church has always, at times, in its own days, been offensive to culture. What's going to be scandalous about the gospel in our time, what's going to be scandalous and offensive about the church in our day, will be its indiscriminate inclusivity and its stubborn behavior to make sure that it's continuing to make room for failures at the table of God. That sounds good on paper, but it's really hard. We're very good at sorting ourselves and then building communities around that. But the church in our time, what will be the scandal of the Gospel, which is truly what the scandal of Jesus was in His own day, just hanging out with all the wrong people, I mean Joel or one of our elders and I were talking about this, like the first meeting of all the disciples had to have been awkward. you know? Levi's here? I don't have any more than that. I'm just saying like it's, it was a completely eclectic group. But to be an Easter people, And this is what the 50 days are for. Like, what does it mean to be an Easter people? To be a resurrection community is to know that when we are at our worst, we are not at our last. Amen? And that the way the church must be offensive with the Gospels and how we keep adding chairs to the table for anyone, especially those who are losing. I love these words from... uh, Uh, Paul Simon's song is called Blessed or Blessed. I'll just read the whole thing because it's about a guy who uh, is struggling to find what he needs in this community. But it's a riff on the Sermon on the Mount, so I just caught my attention years ago, and I love the song. But he writes, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit, Blessed is the lamb whose blood flows. Blessed are the sat upon and the spat upon and the ratted on. Oh, Lord, he asks, why have you forsaken me? I got no place to go. I walked around Soho for the last night or so, but it doesn't matter. No. Blessed is the land and the kingdom. Blessed is the man whose soul belongs to. Blessed are the meth drinkers, the pot sellers, the illusion dwellers. Lord, why have you forsaken me? My words trickle down like a wound that I have no intention to heal. Blessed are the stained glass, window-pane glass. Blessed is the church service that makes me nervous. I love that line. Blessed are the penny rookers, the cheap hookers, and the groovy lookers. Oh, Lord, why have you forsaken me? It's this longing for a kind of community where that can all be present. And there's a blessing over it. The scandal of our time will be an uncommon community. That's it. The, sc- the scandal of Easter is that there will be an uncommon community. And so Paul just says, whatever is worst about us, it is not the last of us. Christ is the last of us. We are made alive in him. And again, resurrection is not just, hey, Jesus came back. It's what does that mean? And it means that the worst thing is never, ever the last thing. Amen.